0: I wanted this morning to finish where we started. Finish where we started. This was the first, uh, first slide that I showed when we started this series together. It's a comic strip, okay? Like I told you, Larry's gone. We're doing things differently now. Uh, we're learning from Bill Watterson. So it says, "Here's, here's Calvin and Hobbes are playing checkers and." <sighs> Calvin beats Hobbes, which he should beat Hobbes, he's an inanimate object, he's a stuffed animal, and he says, I won, I did it, I won, I won, I'm the champion, I'm the best there is, I'm the top of the heap, (laughs) ha 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 ha, and then he looks around, and he surveys the checkerboard, and he looks at Hobbes, and he says, is this all there is? He was expecting some surge, some feeling, some satisfaction that would come from winning this checkerboard game, this game of checkers, and it didn't come. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And similarly, we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon has kind of looked at the checkerboard of his life, and he says, I won. Like, if there's anybody who can claim that they won life, it's Solomon. He goes, I won life in ways that none of you will ever have been able to win life. He goes, You look at all the areas, the things that I've tried, and the ways that I've won. I, I won entertainment. Remember, he had epic ragers of 20,000 people at his house, night after night after night. You haven't partied unless you've partied Solomon style. And he says, I won in the realm of sex. He goes, I had a thousand women. I had a thousand women back at my place. Every fantasy that I'd ever wanted was fulfilled. And I tried wealth. I did the wealth thing. I was richer than anybody who had ever come before me. I had servants who had servants. I'm riding around in private camels. Like I had everything that I had ever dreamed of. I tried work. So pleasure didn't work. So he said, I tried work. I was more successful than anybody else. I was building monuments. I built myself a mansion. I built the God's temple. I built national parks He says, I built houses for every single one of my wives, and that's no small feat. He had 700 of them. And then he says, I tried wisdom. I was wiser. I was the wisest man who had ever lived. I had more wisdom in my fingernail than you have in your head. And yet I stand here. I stand here surveying this earthly checkerboard, and all I can say is, is this all that there is? Is this all that there is? And he says here at the end of chapter 12, he goes, this, this is my conclusion on everything that I've done here under the sun. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything's meaningless. That's the way he opened up the book, and that's the way he closes the book. He says, everything that I've done, that was verse 2 of chapter 1, everything is meaningless or a vapor. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow, and it doesn't mean anything in light of eternity. And and we all, we said, we're all on that same journey that Solomon is, right? We're looking for meaning and purpose in our lives. We're desperately searching for it. And we sang the song. We said, what we all find is what Solomon found is that I can't get no... And you reminded us of why we don't give everyone microphones when we sing uh, during worship time. Um, and, And we try and we try and we try, but we can't find it. And Solomon has shown us in the entirety of Ecclesiastes the meaninglessness of all human effort in the first six chapters. He said you could try wealth, you can try pleasure, you can try success, you can any avenue you want to go, it's a dead end. And then the last five chapters he showed us the meaninglessness of all human wisdom. We said, well, then don't just work harder, work smarter. Because even if you have all the wisdom that's offered under the sun, it still brings you to the same meaningless, hopeless place. I remember the key phrase here was under the sun, and what he meant by that was apart from God, everything that we can understand by our five senses, see, touch, smell, taste, hear, um, he says apart from our God, none of this has any inherent or eternal value. And this week, Solomon, we're going we're gonna to look at the conclusion of the matter part two. Last week, we said life is scary, but don't hide from it. Don't hide from it. God's got a plan for you, and He's in control of the results, not us. And even if the wind blows and the rain falls, He says, Go take those talents and invest them. I'll take care of the results. And then we said, Life is short, but don't waste it. Remember, He said, Remember your Creator while you're young, before it hurts to get out of bed. He says, Make good habits now so that you will reap a rich reward later, and this week, he's going to boil it down to his last two things, and the first point is going to lead to the second point, point. and this is exciting, because Solomon is going to give us the secret. He's going to give us the conclusion. We're going to find the meaning and the purpose of our life. Are You ready for that? Let's do it, okay? So, verse 9, first thing, life is about learning. He says, verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. Now, Solomon, we see what you did there, okay? He tries to go third person on us to make it sound like he's not bragging. But who's the teacher? It's Solomon, right? He says, not only was that teacher guy so wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. I'd be like, if I said, um, that preacher at Peninsula Grace, like, not only is he brilliant and hilarious and ridiculously good looking, but occasionally he'll drop a breadcrumb of brilliance to you blockheads, right? And you're like, okay... (laughs) Bring Larry back. But actually, what Solomon is doing here is he's answering the question, who are you to tell us the meaning of life? Like, where does your sense of authority, how do you validate, because he's doing a very audacious thing here to say this all is meaningless and here's the only thing that matters. So where did Solomon get off saying something like that to us, to the people of Israel? Well, where do we, we know where Solomon got his wisdom, right? We read it in Kings. Solomon was asked by God, he says, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And what he asked for was wisdom, so, so God gave it to him. And actually, in, in, among the nation of Israel, there were three different kinds of people to whom God would reveal his will to then echo to the people, to amplify to the nation. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were teachers or, or counselors. And Solomon was one of these teachers, and his job was to take the wisdom that God gave him and impart it to the people, and that's, that's what he's saying here. So Solomon's wisdom comes from God, but then continue in verse 9. He says, he pondered and searched out and set in order many... Proverbs. This teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. So it's interesting what he says here, that the wisdom that he had came from God, that doesn't mean that he didn't put in the work, right? Solomon here, he he spent his entire life pouring over the scriptures, the Torah. He, He spent his entire life searching out wisdom and meaning, and, he, and, he, and he, he imparts to the people. He says not only did he impart truth to the people, but he says he found just the right words. He spoke in a way that the people of his time would hear. It's not just speaking true words, but it's communicating those true words well. That's just as important as saying something true. And similarly, God gives us wisdom, but we have to put in the work of studying his word and being able to communicate God's love and his truth to Sylvatna and Kenai in 2016 in a way that the people of our community will hear. Otherwise, it's a resounding gong. So I don't sit in my office all week just going, God, give me wisdom. Like, give me wisdom for this message this coming week. And then I take a long nap and see what's going on on Netflix and check my, you know, and just kind of hang out and God's going to hook me up on Sunday morning. It's I get paid for this. It's awesome. But no, always say, God, I'm looking to you for wisdom. And then I open up the word, and I dig in. We we can't just ask God for wisdom and then not put any work in. We, We have to be in the word every single day. We have to be surrounding ourselves with wiser, more experienced people who will disciple us, who will love us, who will challenge us. We need to be reading books that will stimulate our thinking. We need to be asking the hard questions. We need to be praying. We need to to put in the work, but our trust is not in those things. Our trust is in the God who uses those things to reveal himself to us, to reveal himself to the world. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So he uses a couple of examples here of what the words of the wise are like. The first one he says, they're like goads. Okay, the goad was like this pointy spear thing that, that the shepherds at the time would use or, or, or those in the fields to move along to prod and poke their cattle and their sheep to get them going in a direction. Because here's the problem with cattle and sheep. They're really dumb. And they would want to go their own direction. Left to their own devices, the sheep is not going to go where the shepherd wants him to go. The cattle are either going to just stay right where they are, or they're going to kind of do their own thing. And so he says, the, the goad gets them moving in the direction that they need to go. And, 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 when, and when that happens, the sheep doesn't like, oh, that tickled, like, I liked that, right? I go, what? get that stick out of my hindquarters, please, right? It's not, it's not an enjoyable thing. And similarly, God's words... Sometimes they hurt, and sometimes they're uncomfortable, but left to our own devices, we, like sheep, have all gone astray, and we don't on our own, like, wake up one morning and just be like, all right, God, I'm going to do everything you said, I'm going to treat everybody well, and I'm just going to continue to do what you want to do. No, our tendency is to stray, and so the word of God imparted from him, and and often used through a, a wise and loving friend, it can hurt, but it's necessary. Just this last week, I experienced some, some poking and goading that, that I got from the Lord. I didn't want to go in that direction, but I needed to, and it was so good when I finally listened to the Spirit. And he also says the words of the wise are like embedded nails, and the picture here is that the truth, it sinks in to our mind, and it stays there. This is one of the reasons that memorizing scripture is so important. You know, when, when Satan comes and he, he, he tempts us or, or the trials of life overwhelm us, we can't just be like, where, I know there's something in, in scripture somewhere, um, let me go look online real quick. If, if, it's, if it's hidden in our hearts, I mean, you think about Jesus, when, remember when Satan came to him in the desert and he even used scripture to try to speak to Jesus, to get him off track and what did Jesus use to fight him with? What did he use? He used the word of God. He said, no man shall not live by bread alone. Worship your Lord, your God only. When, when Satan comes our way and we go, no, resist the devil, submit to God and he will flee from you. Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. And he said that he's going to build his, his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And we use the word as the sword in the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. But that nail, that truth must have penetrated our minds and fixed itself there for us to be able to win the war of truth versus lies. And then he says these, these nails, these goads, these wise words, they are ultimately given by one shepherd. And in most translations, this shepherd, like in the ESV, is capitalized. And we understand that that all wisdom, all truth, ultimately has but one authority and one source. And it's not us. And the, the true shepherd gives his sheep his wisdom. And we know that all of that truth eventually comes back to God. And anything that contradicts that truth is false and it's foolish and it's destructive. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, be warned my son of anything in addition to them, anything in addition to the words of the wise that were given by that one shepherd. Be warned my son of anything in addition to them of making many books, there is no end and much study wearies the body. And all the students in this building said, amen. All right, I wish I would have found that verse in high school. Use that against my parents, right? No more school, no more books, no more tea. Anyway, um, but Solomon's point here, he says, do not add, do not add to the words of the wise shepherd. And I remember Larry, Pastor Larry's last sermon when he was here with us in early January, uh, the way he said it, and this is stuck with me. Uh, he's talking about the words of the wise, embedding your mind. He said, read the word more than you read about the word. Can you hear that? Read the word more than you read about the word. Isn't it so easy for us just to want secondhand? Because I'll tell you, it is easier. It's easy for someone else who have done the work and just break it down for me. Just, it's like the chewing up of the food to the baby bird's mouth. Just make it easy so I can ingest it. And, that's, and then there's a place for that. That's what I'm doing right now, feeding all the little baby birds. No. Um, so, but, but there's a place for that. And we're not saying don't read books about the Bible, please do, but do not let that replace the chewing on and wrestling with Scripture itself, because that is so much richer and it's so much more rewarding to trust the Spirit as we dig in and study the Bible that that He's going to reveal His truth to us. Now, we need to learn how to study the Bible, and there's training and there's equipping there in the discipleship process. But it's so much more sweet. In fact, when the Ruth Graham Bell, uh, Billy Graham's wife, when she was asked, she goes, she was asked the question, how do you, how does somebody become wise? Like, what's the best way to become wise? And her answer was interesting. She said, read, 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 but use the Bible as a home base. And I've heard the expression, readers are leaders, uh, leaders are readers. Um, and when we want to read, we want to read, we want to read. And for some of you, I know that's more painful than others. But she says, always be coming back to scripture itself. Um, and 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 the question is, how much time are we spending in the Word of God? You know, every day we should be in the Word every day. And for some of us, the challenge is quit reading about the Word as much as you read the Word. For some of us, we just need to be reading the Word at all. Okay, we need to get off Instagram, we need to get off Facebook and the Netflix, and get into the Word. Because here is the reality: we become like what we behold we become like what we behold. So in other words, if I'm watching Spongebob all day, <laughs> you know what's going to happen, right? My pants are going to start getting square. I don't know, I don't know. What's it? Um, but if I'm, but if I'm beholding God in his word as revealed to me and in creation as revealed to me, I'm going to start to become like Jesus. We become like what we, we behold. Life is a school which implies humility that we don't know everything. Uh, for some of us, like me, sometimes that can be, sadly, it can be a newsflash. The Bible is our textbook, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher. John 14 says that he will teach us everything. He'll take the word, and he's our, per- the Spirit of God is our personal tutor. This is an amazing, amazing grace. But there's a danger even here. There's a danger even here to make, and hear me on this, to make the Bible itself Meaningless. And here's here's what I mean. Jacob is my best friend, okay? And let's say that I become obsessed with learning about Jacob Daniel Peterson, okay? I'm just like, man, I need to know more about this. Go, I ask Maggie, you know, can you get me some baby books? I want to see and see the scrapbooks of him growing up. Oh, he's so Cute, man. Like, you know, and we're looking at him. And then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming, I read this biography about him that Ian helped put together with some other friends and thinking, wow, that's an amazing tale. And, um, you know, I start asking Lisa and other family members, like, tell me all about him. Don't leave anything out. I want to know all his quirks, all of his strengths, all of his weaknesses. And I start this, like, Jacob fan club, right? This huge global Jacob movement. And people around the world are, are hearing everything that I know about Jacob. What's missing? a relationship with Jacob. I am spending absolutely no time getting to know the person of Jacob and all I'm doing is is learning more about him. And I've missed the point. And if we do not allow our study of the scriptures to point us to the person of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, we have become just like the Pharisees. In fact, in John 5, that's what Jesus said. He goes, you study the scriptures, and this is indicting, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He goes, you think that you read the information and there is where you find your salvation, that that's where you find your life, but you've missed it. He said, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. One of the things we're going to find this fall is that the entire Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus, the reality of a shadow to come. And he goes, if you miss that, if you study the scriptures and you stay there, knowledge puffs up. And if all we do is get more facts about Jesus into our head, he says, that's not where life is. Where life is, is knowing the person of Jesus that the scriptures point to and having a relationship with him. Which actually leads us to our final point, Solomon's ultimate conclusion about the meaning of life. Life is about learning, but ultimately life is about him. And what he says here, he says, now all has been heard here is the conclusion of the matter. And at the end of his life, Solomon looks around at everything that he's done, everything that he's had, everything that he's accomplished, everything that he's spoken, the parties, the women, the buildings, the parks, the servants, the money. He says it's all meaningless. It all is meaningless. It gave me no satisfaction. I looked around and I said, Is this all that there is? But then he remembers something. He remembers something that his father David taught him when he was very young. Something that was handed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and on down the line. And it's a simple word. It's a simple word the poorest peddler on the street could grab on to. But it's this brief word that trumps all of the wisdom and learning in the world combined. And this is what he says. Now, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. This is the duty of all mankind. That's it. Class is dismissed. Fear God and keep his commandments. The first one he says is fear God. Our meaning begins and ends with God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's he's the beginning and the end. And at the end of Romans, Paul, he says, all things come from him, all things are through him, and all things go back to him to glorify him as God. If we are going to find purpose and value, the quest that we are all on in this life, that meaning must begin with God as a reference point, not ourselves. And so what does it mean to fear God? I love David Jeremiah's definition. He says, and this is in your bulletin, to fear God means to be struck with awe in his all-consuming holy presence To stand always and forever in breathless exaltation of who he is and what he has done and how vastly and infinitely his greatness overshadows our brief, vaporous existence. To fear God is to see him rightly because that's who he is. And the only problem is that oftentimes we create a God of our own making instead of seeing the God of scripture, of seeing the God who, who really is, and what happens, the result of, of a correct vision of, of the glory of God, and to fear him rightly, which should be the, the response, Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And so often we are a people who are afraid, and we're searching for our meaning and our purpose under every rock, behind every nook and cranny, and we're afraid of facing the reality that perhaps there is no meaning in this life. But one glimpse, one glimpse of the true God, and to see him rightly, and all the other fears subside. All the other fears subside. And then he says... Not just fear God, but also keep his commandments. This is part B. And I think Warren Wiersbe said it very well. He said, if the fear of the Lord does not result in obedience, then that fear, that fear is a sham. If beholding God does not lead to an obedience of what he has said to us in his word, then He goes, then you didn't really fear God in the first place. He says, it's impossible to really fear God and not obey him as we said earlier, we become what we behold, and I believe if we are truly beholding him, if he is truly our vision, then what's going to happen is we're going to start to become like him. That our thoughts are going to start to become what his thoughts are. We're going to love the things that he loves. We're going to start to do the things that he wills. And then what he says is, to wrap it up, he says, for this is the duty of all mankind. I think this is actually better translated in other places, uh, for this is the whole of man. And I love this. It is to, to, to revere God and obey him, that constitutes the wholeness of mankind. What it means to be a human is to fear and obey God. And he says everything outside of that, that's beyond our pay grade. That's not for us. That's why you don't find any meaning or satisfaction there. That's not what we were created for. It's not what we were intended for. I remember when I first heard these words of Solomon. I was at Tenalium Bible Camp across the inlet, Port Dallesworth, and my camp counselor, Jeremy Foster. He was a, a, a pastor here, a youth pastor here for a number of years. And he, he was unpacking this for us, this Ecclesiastes, and I read this last part, conclusion of the matter, all's been heard, our whole duty, and I'm like, sweet, because I've always had, since I was young, this kind of OCD tendency, I call it obsessive completist disorder, um, like if I am going to, I'm, I'm into Bob Dylan, I'm now going to listen to every album that he's ever produced, that's a lot for Bob Dylan, he's still writing today, and he started in the early 60s, um, if I'm going to go to a baseball game, <laughs> I want to go to all 30 stadiums over the course of three months. That's just kind of how I roll. And so I saw this, and I'm like, sweet, here it is. It's all there. This is the completeness of what God has asked us to do. Uh, I'm 12. Fear God. I don't know what that means. Uh, obey his commandments. Okay, I can do that. What are his commandments? So I start back. I look at the 10 commandments in the Old Testament. That's where my mind first goes. Okay, 10. I do pretty good at those. Uh, but oh, wait, and I start reading, there's actually like hundreds of commandments here in the Old uh, Okay, Uh, and then wait a second there's this other testament here and Jesus has some things for us and then and then Paul has some commandments and and as you start getting weighed down by all of these commandments that you're supposed to be keeping it gets kind of stressful and overwhelming and through high school I tried to carry that burden I tried to obey all of his commandments because that that was my duty and what I found was I I can't keep those commandments I can't and ultimately it led me somewhere And it led me to a place that another man went in Philippians, uh, similarly to to Solomon. Paul speaks to us, and he looks at the checkerboard of his life. And he makes a very similar statement. He just uses different words than Solomon. Um, This is found in Philippians 3. And I'm actually going to go old school here, and I didn't put the verses on the screen. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. But what I'd like you to do is stand up with me. And... uh, What I'd like you to do is stand up with Uh, me. So so what what we're going to do is we're going to read the word of God. We're going to stand in in reverence of what we're about to read. And my prayer is that that our hearts, that our hearts would resonate with what Paul is saying. And maybe for some of us, we need to hear this truth again. Maybe for some of us, this is the first time we've really understood it this way. But but either way, that that we would give the words of the wise from one good shepherd their due. This is what uh, Paul says, Philippians 3, I'm in the NIV. Starting in verse 5. He says, if, any, if anyone thinks he has more, he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes, if anybody wants to play this game, this game of checkerboard, see who's won, who, see who's done better in life, he goes, I'm better than you. Okay, just like Solomon. I've done this. I've done this better than you have. And then he goes on to say, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He says, I'm a part of God's chosen race. He looks at me and he goes, you're a German. <laughs> Not as good as me, right? And he goes on to say, of the tribe of Benjamin, not just am I of, of God's chosen people, I'm of an amazing tribe. He goes, a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm at the top of the heap of these chosen people of God. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. And we have negative connotations with that, but back in the day, that means I know Scripture better than anyone else knows Scripture. I'm a spiritual man. As for zeal, persecuting the church, and again, at that time, he thought that was good. He was doing what God had called him to do. I know what I'm supposed to know, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. As for legalistic righteousness, it's faultless. He says, I kept the law to a T. But, verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. He looks at it through Solomon's eyes and he says, all of those things that I did, all of those accolades, meaningless, vapor, chasing of the wind, they don't satisfy compared to knowing Jesus. He says, I consider them rubbish. Some translations say dung. A cuss word there would probably be more fitting for the tone that uh, Paul had when he wrote it. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here it comes. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because I looked at those commandments just like Justin did and came to the same conclusion. I can't keep all of those commandments. I can't in my sinful flesh continue to get to the standard that God has asked me to get. To be holy as he is holy. I can't do it. But that which comes, not a righteousness that comes to the law we're in verse 9, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You You can have a seat. When we properly fear God, when we properly see him in his holiness, when we revere him as he's to be revered, you know what comes next? We see our own sinfulness. And we see our inability to keep even one of those commandments, let alone all the hundreds of them. And what this does is it ultimately leads us to the beauty of knowing Jesus. You see, God, through Jesus, kept the commandments on my behalf because I couldn't keep them. He is my righteousness. He is what God accepts when I stand before his throne. And now the only way that I can please God is through faith in in his son who loved me and gave himself for me and now through the spirit is living his life through me. It's not me trying harder. It's me letting go and fully embracing the person of Jesus because one day, and this is how he wraps up the book, this is the last verse, he goes, "For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Even the things that we have been able to fool everybody else in, I and mean, maybe you've been coming through to church for a long, long time, but you haven't clung to the person of Jesus. He says, That's, that, can, that can fool other people, but it can't fool God. We're going to stand before him laid bare, and, and, and the, only, the only way that we can stand in confidence before the God who is to be feared and obeyed, when we see him, when we stand before him on Judgment Day, he's going to ask us one question. He's going to ask us one question, and it's not going to be about our bloodlines. Did, you, did where, who'd you come from? What, who were your ancestors? It's, it's not gonna be our positions in the church. It's not gonna be, what did you build for me? It's not gonna be how cool you were, how many friends you had, how much money you had, uh, how many people came to your congregation on Sunday mornings. He's gonna ask us one question. Did you grab a hold of the person of Jesus? Did you push all your chips in on Jesus? And if you did, welcome home. And if you didn't, there's the door. I turned 32 this week. Thanks to some of you for remembering. I was praying early in the morning, early for me. Uh, I just started, I don't know what led me to this, but I just kind of started declaring who I am. Um, Things kind of about me, kind of a a time to, to take stock. I'm not a big birthday person as far as celebrating, but I thought, you know, the Lord can redeem this, and So I started declaring who I am. I'm Justin Blake Franchino. I'm a 32-year-old homo sapien uh, with bad hips, but really straight teeth, to be fair. (laughs) I occupy space in the Milky Way galaxy, uh, Third Rock from the Sun, North America, Slobattano, Alaska, mother-in-law apartment of the Stroms. I'm single. I have a father and a mother. I have a brother and a sister. Uh, They have families of their own. I'm a pastor at a local Grace Brethren church. I have degrees in intercultural studies and biblical studies, and now elementary education, and I can do this with my finger. (laughs) I love basketball. Um, I love the Orioles, Bob Dylan, reading. I hate, hate, hate diet soda. But most importantly, I'm a child of the King the precious blood of Jesus. And you know, out of all of those, only one is going to remain true for the rest of all eternity. Those other things, those other things, maybe 50, 60 years, maybe, maybe more, but in light of forever, they're a vapor. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. And they will not Give me ultimate meaning and purpose before my God. They're loss. They're dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord and Savior. And the reason that most people on this planet can't find meaning is because they're starting from the wrong reference point. It's not about us. God is the main character in this play. And if we're going to find any significance or value or meaning or purpose, it is only going to be found in him and to know that he is my daddy. And so John and John are going to come back up and we're going to play um, this last song. It's a song that declares, it asks, who am I? In light of who God is, who am I? Who am I that he should even notice me? Who am I that he should not just squash me like a bug because of my own sinfulness in light of his holiness? And what we're going to remember and declare together as a church is that our meaning begins and ends in who God is and who I am in light of that.